Hello, and welcome to the History of Rome. Appendix 2, Episode 2, In the Hands of the Romans. Last time, we finished with Tiberius Gracchus the Elder bringing a final satisfactory peace to the Celtiberians of Nearer Spain. Now, for the most part, the Iberian Peninsula as a whole remained peaceful for the next 25 years. Sure, there was always banditry to deal with and various rebels to skirmish with, but no major conflicts. And really, aside from the one major war in Macedonia that resulted in the climactic Battle of Pydna in 168 BC, the Romans were mostly free of major conflicts anywhere in their sphere of influence during these decades. But the 150s brought new upheavals on all imperial fronts that would lead the Senate to reevaluate their hands-off policy in Greece and North Africa, and instead plot a new course that took the Romans away from implied imperial authority to direct imperial rule. But though this new round of upheavals would, at least from the Roman perspective, climax with the dual sacks of Corinth and Carthage in 146, it was Hispania that opened this new era of conflict, and Hispania that would be the last to be subdued. In 154 BC, both the Celtiberians of Nearer Spain and the Lusitanians of Further Spain went into revolt. In the years that followed, the Senate clearly prioritized the rebellion of the Celtiberians, sending large armies led by consuls to subdue Nearer Spain, while leaving the Lusitanians to smaller legionary forces led by a praetor. But, as we will see both in this episode and our next episode, this relative neglect of the Lusitanians would lead further Spain to ultimately capture a huge amount of Roman attention. But both conflicts would share a very similar pattern, inconclusive battles and skirmishes that would demoralize and exhaust the Romans. In frustration, Roman commanders wound up resorting to vicious atrocities that would not end the conflicts so much as make sure that they kept going for the next two decades. So, for the purposes of explaining all this, we will begin in Nearer Spain with the Celtiberians. We left off in Nearer Spain last time with the Gracchan Peace of 178 BC that had been observed by everyone ever since. Indeed, the peace in Nearer Spain became so reliable that the Romans started exempting tribes from certain obligations under the treaty, and particularly the Belli tribe that inhabited the interior of the province. But a new generation of Belli leaders took this leniency as an opportunity. In 154, the leaders of the city of Segeda decided to start constructing additional fortifications around their city, and then they encouraged a neighboring tribe, the Titi, to come settle amongst them to defend this area and project some enhanced regional power. The fortifications they constructed enlarged the network of walls to a circumference of five miles. When the Romans found out about this, they protested, but the Segedans got cute and said, look, the Gracchan Treaty, which you've already been exempting us from, only said no new walls, and we're not building a new wall, we're just expanding on the one that already existed. This was reported back to the Senate, who replied, yeah, we're not buying that for even a single second. Plus, when we exempted you from the treaty, we said we did so at our pleasure, and we hereby revoke that pleasure. Tear down the wall. With the Celtiberians defiant, the Senate then made a historic decision, one I am quite certain they did not think would be quite as historic as it turned out to be. Up until this point, the new Roman year began on the Ides of March, 
March 15th. This was logical because it roughly coincided with the arrival of spring, which is quite literally the natural place to mark the beginning of a year. But it also meant that if the new magistrates entering office had a long way to travel to get to their assigned province, that they would lose valuable campaigning time. So with the eruptions in Hispania being an example of such faraway provinces, it was here in 154 to deal with the uprisings in nearer and further Spain that the Romans decided to start marking the beginning of a new calendar year at January the 1st. Until now, January and February had been dead months tacked on to the end of the year. Well, now they were dead months tacked on to the beginning of the year, giving the consuls and praetors plenty of time to get into position for the arrival of spring. But they didn't bother to change the name of any of the other months, which is why September, October, November, December, so named because they were the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th months of the year, were now the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th months of the year. They just never bothered to change the names. But anyway, if you've ever wondered about January the 1st being the first day of the new year, here you go. Having faced major uprisings from the Celtiberians in the past, the Senate hoped to smother this latest revolt by sending newly elected consul Quintus Fulvius Nobilier with fully 30,000 men. This was a massive show of force. And with this massive show of force arriving probably before the Sagadans calculated, thanks to the calendar switch, their new wall was not yet finished. So, they ditched the city and went to find refuge with their neighbors, the Aravaki, who had not yet been brought under Roman hegemony. The Aravaki accepted the Belli and the Titi refugees, and together the three tribes pledged to fight against the Romans. And as it turned out, this was going to be quite a bit easier than they thought. Now, it's always hard to tell from fragmented records what really happened, but Quintus Fulvius Nobilier was either incompetent or unlucky or had future enemies happy to paint him in the worst possible light because his year-on campaign proved to be one disaster after another. When he advanced, Nobilier's column was successfully ambushed by 20,000 Celtiberians and the Romans lost 6,000 men before they could execute a retreat. The victorious Celtiberian coalition then massed around what would become the most defiant city in all of the Iberian Peninsula, Numantia. Nobilier advanced and attacked Numantia, but he brought with him some war elephants, one of whom went berserk in the subsequent battle and started crashing through Romans and Celtiberians alike. This forced the Romans to fall back, possibly losing another 4,000 men in the process. Then, harassed by constant guerrilla attacks, Nobilier found out that the city that he had chosen to act as his supply depot was so impressed with this string of rebel victories that they expelled the Roman garrison and declared themselves too in rebellion. So Nobilier, friendless, supplyless, and with nothing but a string of defeats on his record, led his men into quarters, where they spent a miserable winter waiting for reinforcements. This run of failure led the Senate to up the ante, tapping for the consulship of 152, Marcus Claudius Marcellus. Now, though this is not 100% certain, there's very good reason to believe that this Marcellus was the grandson of the legendary Marcellus, five-time consul during the Punic Wars and member of Plutarch's Parallel Lives Greco-Roman Hall of Fame. Now, this Marcellus here was himself entering into his third consulship, 
which was very unusual given the rules that the Romans usually had about these things. Now, I think the only reason that this Marcellus is such an obscure figure is that this stretch of the 2nd century BC is just not very well documented, especially since the existing sections of Livy cut off at 167 BC. But clearly, the Romans thought so highly of Marcellus that they gave him the consulship for 153, even though he had just served a consulship in 155. Marcellus arrived in Nearer Spain with 8,000 reinforcements and immediately proved himself, you know, competent. He avoided various traps and ambushes and quite easily captured a number of cities. The Celtiberian leaders, suspecting that Marcellus was, in fact, competent, decided to request a peace on the basis of the old Gracchan settlement. Marcellus said, that's fine and I'll vouch for the peace, but you three belligerent tribes, the Belli, the Titi, and the Aravaki, must ask for this peace together, which would have the effect of bringing the Aravaki under Roman domination for the first time. But the Celtiberian leaders agreed to this and they sent envoys to Rome. When they presented their cases to the Senate, the Belli and the Titi somewhat disingenuously blamed the rebellion on the Aravaki and told the Senate that there were two available options here. Either the Romans could maintain a major military presence in nearer Spain to keep the peace, or they could severely punish the Aravaki, both to make an example of them, but also to protect the Belli and the Titi from retribution for capitulating to the Romans. Now, for their part, the Aravaki disputed all this, but they didn't exactly do so with the requisite submissive humility. They offered to pay a one-time fine and adhere to the general terms of the Gracchan peace, but they refused to give the Senate what the Senate really wanted, which was a deditio. A deditio meant that they would be putting themselves fully in the hands of the Romans. They would be defeated supplicants. The Aravaki remained defiant, though. They said they had not been defeated, and so we're concluding a treaty with another power, rather than a victorious master. The Senate did not appreciate this. They rejected the offer of peace and instead ordered the recently elected consul, Lucius Lucullus, to raise legions to go continue the war. This brings us to the first time since the Iberian Wars began that we start to feel their impact on domestic Roman politics. Because Lucullus was, let's see, how do I put this delicately? A huge asshole. His methods of conscription were harsh. He ignored exemptions. He ignored complaints from veterans that were being called back into service, even though they weren't supposed to be. This all got to be so bad that the oppressed recruits petitioned the tribunes, the defenders of the people, to deliver them from this unjust use of consular authority. Now, the tribunes had long since been co-opted by the senatorial aristocracy, but a few agreed to intervene. Lucullus tried to blow them off, and so, to get him to listen to reason the tribunes arrested him and put him in jail, which, by all ancient law, the tribunes had the right to do, but which had not even been contemplated in living memory. This would be the first time, but not the last time, that the tribunes would place consuls under arrest over the issue of who would be sent to fight in Hispania. And it kick-started the process of returning the tribunate to a position of self-confident independence from the Senate, which obviously would have major ramifications for the Republic down the road. Now, the way Polybius tells the story 
This deadlock was finally broken when the popular and influential Scipio Emilianus, recently elected quaestor and slated for a command in Macedonia, volunteered to instead go to nearer Spain and bring all of his friends and clients with him. So, off Emilianus and Lucullus would go. But, you know, spoiler alert, this isn't exactly going to be a decisive campaign for them. Emilianus would have to come back to nearer Spain 20 years later to finally finish the war that he's going off to right now. Back in nearer Spain, Marcellus revealed to the Celtiberian leaders that the Senate had rejected the peace. But still eager to end the war, and of course get credit for ending the war, Marcellus told the Celtiberian leaders that he would be able to personally guarantee that they got the same deal that they had just worked out if they agreed to the deditio. You have to formally put yourselves in my hands, and I'll make sure that this all gets settled peacefully without you guys being punished too harshly. This time, all three tribes agreed. So, by the time Lucullus and Emilianus arrived in the province, they discovered that Marcellus had just secured an unrejectable deal because it was based on the deditio. The war was now over. Or at least, it should have been. Marcellus's peace left Lucullus in a bind. You see, Lucullus was financially overextended, and he was carrying a lot of debt. His plan had been to come to Hispania, win the war, and come back loaded with silver. Instead, he showed up and Marcellus said, oh, oh yeah, there is no war anymore. Anyway, I'm going to go home and celebrate a triumph. See you guys later. Appian describes how Lucullus was being greedy of fame and needing of money, did what any utterly unscrupulous Roman consul would do in his position. Lucullus picked a fight with a peaceful tribe that had not even participated in the recent uprising. Alleging some breach of the peace, Lucullus marched against this other peaceful tribe, killed 3,000 of their citizens, and then laid siege to their principal city. He demanded 100 talents of silver to break off the siege. But there was a bit of a problem. These guys did not have 100 talents of silver. Lucullus had been assuming that every city in Hispania was, like, made of silver, and was now furious to discover that this was really not the case. Despairing of being able to satisfy this crazy, greedy Roman leader, the inhabitants of the besieged city just offered a complete surrender and allowed a Roman garrison inside. But in a fit of rage, Lucullus ordered his men to slaughter the inhabitants and then enslave whoever survived. Like I say, Lucullus was a huge asshole. The very few survivors of this unprovoked massacre who managed to get away fled to a nearby city and Lucullus followed. The Romans surrounded the city and Lucullus offered terms of peace, which were understandably rejected because the survivors of the previous massacre were like, wow, that guy is a huge murderous liar, do not listen to him. So Lucullus settled in for a siege. Now remember, famous Roman hero Scipio Emilianus is around for all of this, but obviously this part of his career doesn't get talked about that much because it's not super flattering. But we should mention that it's during this particular siege that Emilianus gets his requisite heroic story about defeating a Celtiberian champion warrior in single combat, and then later, single-handedly rescuing three trapped cohorts who had been ambushed, all of which was reported by his friend Polybius, who I'm sure had no reason to exaggerate Emilianus's exploits. Polybius also gives Emilianus credit for finally brokering the deal that ends the siege, 
he got them to pledge the only thing of value these particular Celtiberians had, 10,000 winter cloaks and a few head of cattle. I kid you not, that was it. Lucullus was furious, but forced to recognize that they had no silver, so he had to take the 10,000 cloaks and the few head of cattle. He moved on to besiege the city of Palantia, but was unable to work his supply lines to maintain the siege, and was forced to go into winter quarters. For his year of unprovoked war, Lucullus would never be brought to account for his actions, nor for the role that he would play in the next even bigger Roman atrocity, which would play out over in Lusitania. Okay, so moving now over to further Spain, we must back up to 154 BC. While the leaders of Segeda were having their bright idea to build a whole new wall, I mean, expand the old wall, the Lusitanians of further Spain went into revolt. Now, this region had long been peaceful, so the local Roman garrisons were caught totally off guard. But as I said earlier, the Romans prioritized the conflict in nearer Spain, so while they sent a consul and 30,000 men to nearer Spain, they sent maybe 10,000 men to further Spain under the command of Amir Praetor. That Praetor's name? Correct, it is Lucius Mummius, one of the stars of the prologue to the storm before the storm. When Mummius arrived in 153 BC, he went on the offensive and in so doing introduced a common pattern to the Roman campaigns in Lusitania. It is a pattern that is in fact so common to the campaigns in Lusitania that it's more likely a literary technique rather than a faithful record of events. It goes like this. Mummius faced the Lusitanian army. He beat them. He drove them back. But the Roman pursuit was so disorganized that the Lusitanians were able to wheel around, smash up the pursuing Romans, drive them off, and capture all their baggage. The next thing Mummius knew, he was back where he started on the coast. Having lost probably as much as half of his army in this debacle, Mummius undertook no further engagements and instead focused on drilling what few men he had left— he did manage to save face at the end of the year by lifting a siege of a city still allied with Rome, and in the process captured some slaves and treasure. The fact that for these efforts, Mummius was awarded a triumph when he returned to Rome speaks to Mummius having some very powerful friends. It also probably helps explain why he was the first Novus Homo elected consul since Cato the Elder some 40 years earlier. But despite Mummius's quote-unquote triumph, the uprising in further Spain was far from over, and it was in fact still ongoing come the spring of 151. Now, this is the same year that Lucullus and Emilianus are going off to nearer Spain. For further Spain, the Senate assigned the praetor Servius Sulpicius Galba. Now, For fans of Cicero out there, you might remember Galba as one of the best, if not the best, orators of his generation. He was a man greatly admired for his rhetorical skill and sublime eloquence. But just between you and me, my object here today will be for Galba to be cemented in your minds as one of the most infamous leaders in the history of Rome. Upon arrival in further Spain, Galba is assigned by our sources that pattern established by Mummius. He launched a successful initial offensive, defeated a Lusitanian army in battle, but the Roman pursuit of that Lusitanian army lacked discipline, and it allowed the Lusitanians to turn around and drive the Romans back to where they started. So Galba was forced into winter quarters, having accomplished nothing. Galba retained his command for 150, 
and with the conflict in Nearer Spain basically over, Galba suggested to Lucullus that they team up to defeat the Lusitanians. And this was a pretty good plan. Galba marched up from the south, while Lucullus led his army in from the east. The Lusitanians were soon trapped between these two Roman armies, and so they approached Galba about a peace. Galba said, yeah, sure, let's do it, and he made rather grandiose promises to the 10,000 or so Lusitanians remaining under arms that they would be settled on new land, good land. Galba said these new settlements would be parceled out in three large batches. So to begin the process of redistribution, he requested that these men meet him at a certain location, it's not really clear in the sources where this is at, and divide themselves into three groups. The first group was then called out onto an open plain, and in front of a mobilized Roman legion, were ordered to lay down their weapons. When their arms had been laid down and collected, Galba ordered his legionaries to surround the now weaponless Lusitanians and slaughter them. Massacre them, all of them. When this bloody and frankly evil work was done, the Romans quickly brought forward the next two groups in succession before word could spread of what really lay in store for them. When the massacres were over, only a lucky few managed to escape outright, with the other wounded or overlooked survivors being rounded up and marked for slavery. Then, just to further prove that he's a dumpster fire of a human being, Galba rounded up all the captured spoils and elected to hoard it all for himself. Having ordered his men to slaughter defenseless supplicants, he did not even let them share in the rewards. The massacres of Galba, however, do mark the end of what we call the Lusitanian War. So how do we assess all this? Historians often debate how to address the conduct of men and women living in another time, when rules of conduct, morality, and behavior are so very different. The general consensus is that it's folly to judge somebody against the rules and conduct and morality of the present day, and that we should seek to place any moral judgment in the context of their times rather than our times. Now, this is not an ironclad rule, but you need extraordinary justification to try to harshly render judgment on historical figures. And if you struggle with this, just remember that in a hundred years, something you don't even think about, something you find utterly innocuous, may get you branded as a monstrous cat. It's a fate that's in store for all of us. So this is why historians try to stay away from such casual moralizing. This pertains a lot in Roman history, which, as we all know, is a brutal and cruel and pretty casually violent place in a way that shocks contemporary sensibilities. So, for example, the Romans are often hit with that old line in Tacitus that the Romans made a desert and called it a peace. Now, this, for one thing, is a wild exaggeration and not really how the Romans tended to operate. But even if there was some excessive sacking or slaughter, it was generally after somebody had broken the terms of a truce or a treaty. I mean, think about Aurelian at Palmyra. He beat their armies, he captured their capital, they capitulated. Aurelian was then incredibly lenient and went home. But after that, the Palmyrenes went back into revolt the minute Aurelian was over the horizon. So Aurelian came back, and this time he leveled their city, and he killed everyone and sold the rest into slavery. Is this harsh? Yes. By the standards of the day, though, they had been given their chance, and they blew it. And that's kind of how you have to think about these things. Which brings us back to Galba's massacre of the Lusitanians, and to a lesser degree, Lucullus's unprovoked attacks on those peaceful Celtiberian tribes. 
we have to view their actions against the moral codes of the day. And when we do, we find them guilty. Yes, guilty, 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 guilty. The past was a harsh and brutal place, but even by the standards of the day, what Galba did was an unconscionable crime. Unable to defeat the Lusitanians in the field, he lured them under false pretenses to lay down their arms with the expectation that they would now live in peace under Roman hegemony. But it was all a trick, and Galba slaughtered these defenseless and unarmed men out of what appears to be sheer murderous spite. And this goes for Lucullus too. A peace had been in place in nearer Spain. It had been agreed to by the Romans. And so he did what? He targeted a tribe that had done no harm to the Romans. He captured a city with a promise of peace and then slaughtered his way to 10,000 cloaks. Now, the way we know that none of this was okay is that it was all a scandal back in Rome. The Senate was shocked when they read these reports. Cato the Elder and others took it upon themselves to harp on the crimes of Galba and tried to bring him to trial. But unfortunately, the scandal over Galba's crimes in Lusitania only wound up demonstrating that the Republic was not very healthy. Though considered one of the finest orators of the day, Galba's defense reportedly rested only on the amount of money he spent bribing the jurors. Money was now officially trumping traditional codes of honor and morality. And when later populare critics of the political establishment talked about the wanton cruelty and corruption of the Senate, the acquittal of Galba was among the examples cited. And far from being punished, Galba in fact went on to have a long and successful career. The point being, though, that it's not that the Romans didn't think what he had done was monstrous, it's just that they decided to look the other way. And that is a damning indictment of all of them because they knew it was wrong. What Galba did was wrong. And on top of all that, Galba's one possible saving grace, that his murder of all these rebels meant that there would be no more rebels, backfired spectacularly as these things so often do. Because there were a few survivors, and those survivors spread the story of the duplicitous, murderous Romans, and future Lusitanians would not be interested in any compromise with these Italian invaders. Compromise meant death. And one of them, most especially, will become the focus of our next episode because he will prove to be one of the most formidable opponents that Rome ever faced, Viriatus. Viriatus.